Good morning. Well, I'm Josh, and I'm going to teach Sunday school today. Thanks for coming. Uh, let's start with prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you bring us together and that you give us your word and that you give us yourself in your word. I pray that you would open our hearts and minds and make this discussion a uh, beneficial time for us all. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, for my two Sundays at least, no, two is my goal. I've got a lot of material and I've tried to chop it down for you guys and we'll see if I succeeded. But <clears throat> we'll be covering something I looked at in Psalm 22, which is the how God is named. Um, so this week we'll go through kind of generally what is the meaning of God's name and we'll look at some examples of how passages change perspective as God is named differently in those passages. And then the next time we'll go into Psalm 22 specifically. And Brian, are there handouts if people want them? Yeah. If you'd like a handout, uh, Olivia and Lucy can help pass those out if you don't have one. Okay. <clears throat> Up higher. Oh. I hate microphones, but I have a tiny voice, so. <laughs> so to begin with, I'm glad that the Etheridges are here in one way because I put this question together, not really remembering. Uh, so here's the question. How many Joshes are there here today? Well, today that works. So how many are there? Just one, right? Yeah. All right. So I wanted to illustrate something about names <clears throat> that they're used as shorthand to describe someone. So what if instead of using my name, we always said, uh, the man with glasses and a short beard who's graying, a little overweight, and married to Margarita, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, yeah, we don't do that. So we can see that names have meanings, meaning in themselves. They're shorthand to refer to someone or something that has particular attributes. It's like using the word instead of a definition in a sentence, kind of like milk. Tom had a bowl of cereal with a white liquid from the udder of a cow. Tom had a bowl of cereal with milk. So in thinking about this, uh, let's, let's think about this. What's the difference between using the name of someone and describing someone? Describing someone usually implies there is a relationship there. Okay. Describing gives the fuller details of who that person is. Okay, now thinking about that, <clears throat> how far could you go describing, well, describing God? Forever. <laughs> uh, so we can see that in a name, it contains everything um, that you can, ex you can explain and explain and explain 
But at some point, using a name is what you do. Um, a name is short, yep. It's, it's a, well, not a label, but it's a name. Uh, so it's almost an infinite difference between the two, between describing something and just naming something. So looking at Scripture, we see God named differently in Scripture. And, uh, and this does have meaning. And in these two lessons, that's what we're going to look at, especially in relation to Psalm 22 and looking at El Elohim, the word for God in general, and Yahweh, God's covenant name, his special covenant name, his personal name. So we're going to look this week at the meaning of El Elohim, El being the singular, Elohim being the plural, uh, for God, and then Yahweh. And then we're going to look at some passages that show, that highlight the difference in perspectives when these names are used. And the, the idea kind of that I summarized the whole lesson in is God's name assures us of his presence. And the first point is that scripture uses different names for God to teach us about himself. So just to get an idea of where everyone's at, uh, can I get a show of hands for everyone that knows the four English letters that we bring out of the Hebrew to spell God's personal name? Okay. Um, who would like to tell us what those letters are? Y-H-W-H. And I'll, I'll be pronouncing that Yahweh, which is kind of the way people do nowadays. It was Jehovah at one point, and who knows what else, but... Yahweh is how I'll be saying it. And um, What about how it's translated into the English Bible? How does it look? Does everyone here realize? I, I'm pretty sure we know. We've been told. I've heard. Uh, capital L-O-R-D. So all capitals designates that as the name. So Yahweh is, is what that means. So as we look at this... Um, Speaking of Psalm 22, I'm just going to read the first two verses where we get El and Elohim. So verse 1 uses El. Verse 2 uses Elohim. So Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. So those are the first two namings of God in Psalm 22. And as we look at those names, in general, El or Elohim refers to God's power and might as creator. So let's look at El. We can go to Genesis 14, uh, in the section where Abram meets Melchizedek in Verses 17 through 24. Um, Melchizedek brings out bread, and it says he was priest of God Most High. And in verse 19 of Genesis 14, it says, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, that's El, El Most High, maker of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, that's El again, who delivered your enemies into your hand, etc. So the word here is the word for God, and it can be used for God, our God, the only true God, 
the one true God, or it can be used to refer to a little g God, a false God. Um, like in Exodus thirty-four fourteen, it says, you shall worship no other God in the singular and other places, of course. So all told, if you guys want to keep track of the statistics here, L is used uh, 235 times in the Old Testament, according to my count. Um, all right, so now let's move to Elohim, which is used very many more times than that, 10 times more. Uh, 2,600 times is what I got. It's the plural of El, uh, which we see in Exodus 20, verse 3. There shall be for you, and by the way, my translation is the Lexham English Bible because it actually uses Yahweh. So that's why sometimes the English sounds a little weird. Um, but you guys can see it in the ESV too. Exodus 20, verse 3. There shall be for you no other gods before me. Gods is Elohim, little g. However, when referring to God there, in verses 1 and 2, we see it used. It, it's called an intensive plural, or uh, Jacinius in his lexicon calls it the plural of majesty. So we see that in, in Exodus 20, 1 and 2, where it says, And God, Elohim, spoke all these words, saying, I am Yahweh, your God, Elohim, who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of slaves. And this designates him to be the most high God, not to be compared to any other God. And uh, it, it refers to him in this way to make, make it, he is the, to say he is the powerful creator of all things. There's no one else like him. Um, any questions so far? Clarification of the plural of majesty. Plural of majesty. So it's a Plural, but it's not a plural. It's it's put in the. F Go ahead. Yeah. In English time, when there were monarchs, mm -hmm. they would speak as we, even though there's only one person. Ah. Uh -huh. Speaking of the majestic um, city king and monarch, so that's what I was. Ah, thank you. Yeah. So monarchs would speak of themselves as we. Because they are majestic. Okay, thank you. That's very good. Um, yeah. Uh, in review, anyone want to tell me what the two general names for God mean? El Elohim. What they what they in general mean? Lucy. No. All right. <laughs> That's right. It's a, a point A there. It reveals his power and might as creator of all things. <clears throat> okay, we're going to move to now looking at Yahweh, God's covenant name, and how it reveals his unstoppable grace. This section is a little bit longer. Um, and I'm trying to move through all this as quickly as I can on the one hand, but I also don't want to leave anybody behind on the other hand. So if you need to stop me, raise your voice or a question, either way. So Yahweh, God's personal name, is the covenant name, of course, of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, this is by far the most common name for God in the Old Testament, used over 6,000 times, which I believe is more than all the other names combined. More than twice all the other names combined, sorry. 
Um, so we're going to trace the meaning of the name Yahweh by looking at Exodus, where it's in, there are three places in Exodus where God specifically reveals himself as Yahweh. So he comes as Yahweh. And the first place, of course, uh, and our first point under that section looking at Yahweh is, He is. Exodus 3, verses 14 through 15. Of course, this is where uh, God is calling Moses to lead his people out of Egypt. And Moses asks God, what's your name? What, who should I tell him your name is? And God's reply was, uh, well, and God said to Moses, I am that I am. And he said, so you must say to the Israelites, I am sent me to you. That's verse 14. As we move on, God said again to Moses, So you must say to the Israelites, Yahweh, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my remembrance from generation to generation. Um, John Curid, in a commentary I read, explained the meaning of this name. Uh, the name of a person often reflects an attribute of that person. So it is with the name Yahweh. It is derived from the simple Hebrew ver verb for to be. God's name means being, I am who I am. The name signifies, first of all, that God is self-existent. End quote. And I liked that quote, especially in regards to thinking about who God is in terms of his promises. Um, so Yahweh is the God who exists outside of creation, never changing, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, as the catechism puts it. And Israel here is given that name, which is to be remembered by them as the name to which all his gracious dealings with them will forever be associated. So because of who Yahweh is, Israel could be perfectly assured that his gracious promises would be fulfilled. Now, if I made you some very, like if, uh, let's say, I could forgive your sins, would you believe me um, if you met me, if you really knew me? Probably not. Um, yeah. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Sorry about that. All right. So he is. He is self-existent. Because of who God is, his promises are sure. So moving to point two under this, he promises to redeem his people. Uh, we'll look at Exodus 6, verses 2 through 9 there. And God spoke to Moses and he said to him, I am Yahweh, and I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God should die, but by my name Yahweh I was not made known to them, or I was not known to them. And I not only established my covenant with them to give to them the land of Canaan, the land of their sojournings in which they dwelt as aliens, but also I myself heard the groanings of the Israelites whom the Egyptians are making to work, and I remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am Yahweh, and I will bring you out from under the forced labor of Egypt, and I will deliver you from their slavery, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great punishments. And I will take you as my people, and I will be your God, and you will know that I am Yahweh your God, 
who brought you out from under the forced labor of Egypt. And I will bring you to the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And I will give it to you as a possession. I am Yahweh. Anybody catch something repeated in there quite a few times? What's that? I am Yahweh. Yep. Uh, I think that's on purpose. Um, We see Yahweh assures Moses here that he will indeed deliver Israel. I am Yahweh, he says. And that underscores the certainty of the the momentous uh, event about to take place in uh, redemptive history. So within this speech, Yahweh reminds Moses or tells Moses that he's remembered his covenant made with the fathers and that he will therefore bring Israel to the land of Canaan. Verses 4, 6, and 7 there. And he gives them that great promise that we see repeated throughout Scripture in verse 7 that Israel will be his people and he will be their God. We see that in Exodus 29. Genesis 17, Leviticus 22, Deuteronomy 29, Revelation 21, etc. And he promises to bring them out from slavery in Egypt. And if a promise is as good as the one giving it, there you go. Moses and Israel were absolutely then assured of deliverance because these promises were attached to Yahweh's great name. So the third time in Exodus that God specifically reveals himself is in Exodus 34. And this will be the third point. He redeems according to his grace, mercy, and steadfast love. That's Exodus 34, verses 5 through 7. So, so far we've seen that Yahweh, the name Yahweh teaches us that the promises of God will surely be fulfilled because of who he is and because he's a promise-keeping God. And in this final instance of God's revelation of his name in Exodus, we see him revealing his character. Over and over again in the books of the Old Testament, we see salvific promises attributed to the name Yahweh, especially in regard to his mercy and grace. And one example is Psalm 86 Verse 15, where it says, But you, O Yahweh, are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abundant in loyal love and faithfulness. That's uh, Psalm 86, 15. But we're going to go to Exodus 34, 5 through 7 now. I hope I didn't uh, cause too much page turning. I don't think I did. And we'll read from verse 5. And Yahweh descended in the cloud, and he stood with him there. Stood with Moses there. And he proclaimed the name Yahweh. And Yahweh passed over before him, and he proclaimed Yahweh, Yahweh, God, who is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding with loyal love and faithfulness, keeping loyal love to the thousands, forgiving iniquity and trespass, transgression and sin and he does not leave utterly unpunished punishing the guilt of fathers on sons and on sons of sons on third and fourth generations so here Yahweh describes his glorious character to Moses but I would like to ask what had just happened in Exodus 32 
What, what, where did this take place in history? What had just happened? Yep, Moses had asked God to show us. Yep, go go a couple chapters back. It's a it's a pretty big deal. Yep, 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 yep. Exodus thirty two is where they, well, as Aaron put it, he threw gold into the fire and a golden calf popped out. Um, that's where Israel was down below, committing idolatry. While Moses was up above getting the covenant law given to him. So this is a very significant revelation in that regard. Moses had interceded as, as right before uh, where Gary was referencing. And God had said, okay, I will, I will go with you. Due to Moses interceding for the people. Um, he had said, I, I shouldn't go with you, otherwise my presence will destroy them. I, shouldn't, I can't go with the people. And Moses said, but God, what will the nations think? Your name is attached to the welfare of Israel. Uh, Moses was up there on the mountain speaking to God and receiving his covenant law. Remember that uh, in Exodus 32. The people were down below breaking covenant with Yahweh. And because of this, in Exodus 32, they're punished not only with death and with affliction, but Yahweh said his presence would no longer go with Israel lest he destroy them. That's in uh, where he says that is chapter 33, verses 3 and 5. Then Moses intercedes for the people and begs that Yahweh go with him, reminding Yahweh of his relationship to Israel. Israel, And that is, his presence with Israel is their defining characteristic. What makes Israel unique is that Yahweh is their God. Without him, there is nothing special about them. Verses 12 through 17 of chapter 33 shows this, that the name of Yahweh is tied to the welfare of Israel. And we see this as it says, um, knowing by name. So I know you by name, that's uh, verse 12, and you have found favor in my eyes, says Moses to God, uh, that God said to him. And Moses says, and now if I have found favor in your eyes, make known to me, please, your way, and so I may know you, so I can find favor in your eyes and see that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence will go, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence is not going, do not bring us up from here. And but by what will be known then? Uh-oh, I lost my place. That I have found favor in your eyes, I and your people... Is it not your going with us? And so we will be distinguished, I and your people, from all the people who are on the face of the ground. And Yahweh said to Moses, Also I will do this thing that you have spoken, because you have found favor in my eyes, and I have known you by name. And he said, Please show me your glory, Moses said. And he said, I myself will cause all my goodness to pass over before you. And I will proclaim the name of Yahweh before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show compassion to whom I will show compassion. But he said, you are not able to see my face because a human cannot see me and live. And Yahweh said, there's a place with me and you will stand on the rock. And when my glory passes over, I will put you on the rocks 
crevice and I will cover you with my hand until I pass over and I will remove my hand and you will see my back but my face will not be visible. And uh, the question came to mind as I thought about this. How great is a king who can't protect his own people? That's kind of Moses' argument. Is what? Look, you brought us out here. You promised all these things. How can you leave us behind now? And 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 it was tied to who Yahweh is and his promises made, not to the people's uh, performance. Um, so it, it highlights his gracious character and and. We'll ask the question, why is God's grace unstoppable? Can you elaborate on that? Being the eternal God? So his grace is dependent on his own name, his own being. Charlie? Uh, you get, uh, yeah. Like, he is being, we are becoming. It's kind of a twist of the old question. But you know, what happens when a movable object meets an immovable object, which is the Lord, right? If we yield. He is our rock. He is our yeah. rock. Our salvation. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so the covenant Lord and the covenant vassal were. Uh, how many kids are in here? A few kids. Anybody know what a vassal is? Can any, any adults answer that question? It's a servant that serves the king and is protected by the king. There's yeah. a relationship there that's beneficial to both. Yeah, there's kind of a great king, lesser king relationship. Or yeah. And so if the king cannot protect his vassal, what how does that reflect upon the king? Not very well. Um so God here then agrees to remain with Israel. Moses asks Yahweh to show him his glory. And as we consider the meaning attached to God's name, uh, especially in terms, terms of thinking about his grace, his loving kindness, uh, notice Yahweh's response to Moses' request to see his glory is that he would show Moses two things, his goodness and his name. And this revelation is the closest thing Moses will get to seeing the glory of God, at least on earth, in uh, 34, 5 through 7. And we see that there Yahweh passes before Moses, repeating his name twice, declaring his grace, his mercy, his slowness to anger, and his, well, limitless loyal love is one way to say it, or steadfast lover. Um, What's it say in the ESV? Anybody have that? Loving kindness? Steadfast love and faithfulness. 
And we can see the significance of this event in counting, if you want to count, how many times it's repeated in Scripture. Numbers 14, 2 Chronicles 30, Nehemiah 9, Psalm 86, 103, 111, 112, 116, etc., etc. Um, it's a big deal. And so this, this, that's the end of the survey of the meaning of God's name. And I notice I've taken a good half an hour. Um, any questions? We're going to move to some specific passages if there are no questions, if there are questions, we'll answer them. <laughs> okay, so the takeaway is God's name means something, and it's a big deal, especially Yahweh. Um, God's name assures us of his presence because he is who he is, self-existent one, never changing. God's That's who God is, and his presence he comes near to his people in salvation. Um, so we're going to look then. It, oh, there's a quote here. Cole. I forget his first name. Uh, I thought he put it well regarding the name Yahweh. It ultimately meant to them, Israel, what the name Jesus has come to mean to Christians. A shorthand for all God's dealings of grace. That that was an apt way of putting it. So we'll come to our second point. We'll go as far as we can, and uh, we'll call it good. And I think, I think just covering one of these will be sufficient. So don't despair if you think we don't have time, because I'm sure we don't. But I forgot how long these things, how, how long things take when you're teaching. <laughs> All right, just a quick survey then. Uh, has anyone noticed a survey of you guys? I'm just curious where you're at again. Have you noticed the significance uh, of the change in how God's named in a passage as you've read the passage before? Spe- speaking personally, I, I used to most of the time just kind of wash over it. Like, Lord God didn't really impact me. And it still doesn't the way it should, but is, have you guys... Uh, is it? Mm-hmm. Does that help? help you to take note of things or well, it's interesting to if you want to do some research mm-hmm. okay so this survey is going to look at that we're going to go to see point number two scripture names God differently as its perspective changes from near to far um, and so like I said it's not something I used to really notice it's just one of those things that I would gloss over as I read scripture. And even in seminary, I think that was a tendency for most of us there. Um, it's just, you, it's familiarity. And um, and as I studied for, I wrote the thesis on Psalm 22 for, for, for graduating seminary, and that's kind of what I was looking at. I was starting to realize, hey, this is significant. So as we go into this, let's look at Genesis 1 through 3, chapters 1 through 3. So who can tell me who the original audience of Genesis was? People of Israel after they left Egypt. 
was at the end of the Pentateuch or right there in Genesis 1. There was only Adam and Eve and God. So, <laughs> no, so I mean, uh, the written, the, the writing of Genesis 1. Yeah. Yeah, that's part of the conclusion I came to. This, and you can see this in terms of thinking about where Israel had been. Had they been in a nation of God-fearers or of God's-fearers? Small g. Uh, the latter. So as we look at chapter 1, we see then the account of the creation of the heavens and earth by God. Elohim is the word used. In Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's Elohim. And as you work your way through, we're going to look at Genesis 1.1 through 2.3, and then 2.4 and following. As you work your way through the first part, you see Elohim used, I think it's 34 times in 34 verses. Uh, Not every verse has it, but some verses have it twice or something like that. So it's over and over and over again, but it's the only word used to refer to God. The text flows through the seven days of creation, each day describing what Elohim has done until the seventh day on which he rests from his work. And then as you reach chapter 2, verse 4, the perspective changes from his general creation of all things to his creative, uh, to his relationship with man, his covenant relationship with man in verse 4. Chapter 2, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created on the day that the Lord God, so Yahweh God, made the earth and heavens. And there you see Yahweh, Yahweh God now. Uh, And so there's a change in how God is named. And as you read through chapter 2, you see now he's creating a place for man to live. He's giving man his covenant law. He gives... Man, the covenant of grace after man breaks covenant with God. And perspective has shifted from God in general being creator of all things to God coming to be with his people and entering into a special relationship with them. In Genesis 1 through 3 there. Can someone tell me what the three things were that God covenanted to to? to give Abraham in Genesis or Abram in Genesis 12 and repeated in Genesis 17 there are three things that were promised one I was going to say one rhymes with and and starts with la land a blessing and a seed, yeah. So a land, a seed, and a blessing, yeah. Yeah, and this, this in Genesis 3 is where that, that the genesis of that problem is. <laughs> Pun, see? Um, we see uh, that in 3.23, man loses the right to the land of Eden and is unable to regain again that righteousness, that original righteousness for his descendants. And God sending that seed in 3.15 is evidence of this. Paul picks up on it in Romans 5. And because of his being cast out of God's dwelling place in Eden, he's denied the blessing of dwelling in the presence of God. But 
here is where Yahweh Elohim promises an offspring who will undo the curse, reverse the curse, and bring his people back into fellowship with himself forever in Genesis 3.15. That's the, that's the seed promise. Um, it's clear then, I think, and I hope you agree, that from these first three chapters we see how God has named changes along with the perspective changing. Can you see that as it moves from a perspective of far to near? All right. Psalm 19, we can go there. Um, this is another example. And Psalm 19 is, it's, it's so easy to see. It's almost not worth mentioning, but it's worth mentioning. Uh, it's a great psalm. Here in Psalm 19, the word for God in the first verse, uh, the heavens declare the glory of God. That's L. And then it goes on throughout through the first five verses to describe how the sky above proclaims his handiwork, day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voices goes out throughout all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. That's through verse 6. Can somebody read verses 7 through 9? Any uh, volunteers? Will? So Psalm 19 is notably different as we hit verse 7. Uh, it shifts suddenly to proclaim the majesty of God, Yahweh's law, testimony, precepts, commandments, fear, and rules in various ways. In verses 7, uh, is that 7 through, what did I say? 7 through 9 and 10. Um, so this shift kind of, it's like general revelation is wonderful. The sun is glorious but there's an intensification when it comes to God's special revelation. And it begins to focus on his law, which then, as we get into 10 through the end of the psalm there in 14, um, shows us that it pushes the reader to acknowledge with the psalmist um, something about God's law. What happens when God's law, the light of God's law shines upon us? It does, and, and yet, and yet, the psalmist, in verse fourteen, what does he do? The very last uh, sentence. Can somebody read the very last sentence? O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. O Yahweh, my strength and my redeemer. Yes, and that's perhaps uh, that's that's like the climax, I think, of the psalm, and and we see a progression from. Far to near again, El, creator of all things, comes uh, is described as the creator of the heavens and the earth, and general revelation proclaims his glory. 
Yahweh is used as God comes near in his law and as our Redeemer. Um, So I think we will conclude here. I'm going to, uh, uh, I would, I'll go through the conclusion, but Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 are kind of neat to look at. And their perspective there also, it changes. There are two parallel Psalms that are almost identical except for a couple verses toward the end, a verse toward the end. So if you look at that on your, in your free time, just note which one names Yahweh, which one doesn't. And, um, Look at the perspective, which one's looking at God's people and which one's looking at the enemies of God. So it's kind of cool to look at. And I even have a handout for it, but we'll leave it aside. Um, So can anyone recall to me the main idea of the lesson? You can cheat if you want. If it is cheating, is it on the handout? So I imagine all of you can recall it. God's name assures us of his presence. Yes, yeah. All right, let's have a child answer this one. It's a tough question. I hope you all know the answer. Who saves us from sin? God. God does? Can you be even more specific about God's name? Who died on the cross? Yep. And his name? It's the Sunday school answer. My kids are too embarrassed to say it. Jesus, right? Yes. Yeah, you know it. It's embarrassing. I know. I'm up here in front of all of you. (laughs) Yes, Jesus. Jesus saves us from our sin. And who does Jesus send to dwell among those who trust in his name? The Holy Spirit, yes. So here's a more serious question. How can we apply this? How can we apply this idea that God's name assures us of his presence? As I was trying to think this through, I was thinking of Genesis 3 where they they, uh, replaced enjoying God's presence with eating fruit. Or Exodus 32 where they replaced the glory of God with a calf made with their own hands. Um, So how do we do that today? How can we apply this to our tendency to create idols? There are so many ways. Yeah. We would be. Why are we still on earth? What is God doing with us? He's calling us from underneath. For one thing. And then things like 
he's conforming us to the image of Christ. We need conforming. And um, I think the way I was thinking about this, if, if we really look to see who God is, we will find him. We will find satisfaction. And we can pray to the Lord God to help us. Jesus sent his spirit to dwell with us and to help us, to conform us to the image of Jesus. And so we have his word and his spirit. And um, that's kind of, it is a general broad. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) All right, let's end in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time and uh, give us all hearts to worship you and be with those who minister the word of God to us. Protect their, their hearts and their speech. And may we hear rightly what you have to say to us. In Jesus' name, amen.